It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. It's a tale as old as our digital era. Tech enthusiasts wanting to repair their devices without the authorization of the company that makes them. Apple, for example, is notoriously awful at allowing users access to easy fixes of iPhones or MacBooks, and instead offers expensive options with one of its geniuses. Speaking of iPhones, those new iPhones, turns out they're very expensive to fix. Replacing the screen on the iPhone XR will cost $199. And like everything in our society, the current pandemic has exposed these right to repair practices for what they are, ridiculous. Our motherboard AIC, Jason Kebler, is here to tell us about a Polish hacker who's saving ventilators. I'm Ben Maku, and this is Cyber. Jason, for as long as I've known you, which is 2014, you've had a real interest in the right to repair all manner of technological device we frequently use in our lives. <laughs> and this story is particularly COVID-19 specific. And it's, it's very interesting. It's a right to repair story I didn't see coming. Yeah. Um, so Ben, it's good to be here, not on Cypher. You're, you're featuring some of my work for a change, which is very nice. Hello. Your work is motherboard. So Thank you for I for feature your work, your work all the time. Yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> all my children, all my, you know, uh, thank you for having me on. Uh, this is the hot seat, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I've been writing about right to repair for a very long time. Um, I think I've told this story a few different times, but but broadly speaking, right to repair is the idea that if you buy something, you should be able to fix it. And that means both from a tech, technical perspective, like uh, things should be designed to be repairable, whether that's like a cell phone that has a removable battery or an easily replaceable screen or a computer that you can upgrade the RAM on or what have you. Um of course, Apple is not particularly very good at this. They don't allow their customers and their people that use their products to do this so easily. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of um, barriers that companies put up to prevent repair. So, um, you know, one of them is in the design. The other is in actually giving people replacement parts or not giving it to them, but selling it to them for a fair market price. There are very few companies that sell replacement parts to things that you buy. Um, I remember I bought a blender. I have a blender right now and the food processor, like part of it, the bottom of it fell off. And there's just like, no, I can't glue it back on. I can't find a replacement part. And so the entire blender device is essentially trash. Like I, I can't figure out how to fix it, which is a bummer because it's, you know, the whole thing is going to go in the trash and it's like two years old. And I would much rather just buy a single little connector part that could go on the bottom of this food processor thing and, uh, fix it and go on about my life. But instead, uh, you know, it's not available. And so it has become trash. And that's like one very small example, but you can think of Keurig coffee makers, you can think of 
uh, cameras, you can think of cell phones, you can think of computers. So 50 to 70 years ago, if you opened up the electronics in your house or an appliance, there'd be a schematic on it that says how it's put together. And if you needed parts, you could either contact the company that manufactured it. And even if they didn't make the product anymore, they would usually tell you where to get the parts. Fast forward to today. A few years ago, if I wanted to buy a charging chip, so let's say a MacBook laptop, I could buy that for 5 or $10 and then I can fix it. Now, in 2018, Apple released a different machine, and it uses almost the same charging chip. They changed one thing, the address that it speaks to the rest of the computer on. And I can't buy that chip. What they told Intersil, the company that makes it, only sell this chip to us. So when I contact any electronics reseller, they say, I'm sorry, we can't sell it to you. This means that rather than paying me to fix the machine or anybody else, your only option is to go to Apple and have this three or $4,000 device fixed by them for $1,500. And increasingly, you can think of things like tractors and medical equipment, which is what we are going to be talking about today. Exactly. And I got to tell you, I didn't see this coming from Poland of all places. People are getting things and then bringing them back to America. Yeah. So like I said, I've been writing about the right to repair for a few years now, and it definitely started off with me writing about Apple, making it difficult to fix the iPhone. Um, and then, you know, companies like Samsung also making it difficult to fix Galaxy devices or what have you. But as I got more and more into this world, I learned that, uh, you know, repair technicians at hospitals, as well as independent repair experts have the same problems with things like ventilators and x-ray uh, diagnostic equipment. And I talked to my dentist about it one time, like he can't get, uh, you know, uh, you know, that little light thing that hangs over your head where uh, I guess it's a light and a mirror. I don't know what dent dental equipment is called, but he can't f get anyone to fix his dentist chairs without paying the uh, company that makes it an absurd amount of money. And it's something that he complains about all the time. And, you know, this is something that you probably wouldn't know unless you're in the, the dental industry. So this is a long wind up for saying that over the last decade, companies all around the world, but especially American companies have made it very difficult to repair things. And that is not an accident. It's by design. So you have companies like John Deere that have what they call authorized repair people and they have dealerships that are authorized as well and these people get the repair uh, manuals they get the repair diagnostics they get the tools and the parts that are required to repair a tractor and if you're talking about someone like GE Healthcare then GE is has their own repair people who are allowed and able to fix GE ventilators and if you have something like a global pandemic where suddenly all of these devices are being used at full capacity all over the world and all over the country and it's hard to travel around the country, you are faced with a situation where there are simply not enough authorized people to fix the things that need to be fixed. And they've never been more important to be fixed than right now. They've never been more, I mean, I, I feel, I'm sure the New York hospital system would agree they've never been more vital i mean we were begging for them at one point yeah i mean fix so them in, is, is there's going to be wear and tear in like march and early april i mean there was this huge concern that you know there wouldn't be enough ventilators to go around and there was talk about requiring donald trump to call in the defense production act to require ge and all these other manufacturers to ramp up ventilator uh 
manufacturing and luckily and thankfully and i think probably through no uh nothing else other than sheer luck i guess i I don't know what you'd call it but it's like we haven't had a situation in the united states yet to where there have been people who have been where there have been doctors who have been required to make decisions to uh, not treat some patients for COVID because uh, there are simply not enough ventilators to go around. Uh, this is something that we saw in Italy, I think in February and March, where there just weren't enough ventilators. And so older people were uh, sometimes simply not put on ventilators and left to die. And while COVID has been like wildly out of control here in the United States, and we hear about places uh, like Houston most recently being uh, Houston and Florida having their ICU rooms completely full, we've been able to shift ventilators around the country to prevent any one hospital from getting overloaded, uh, which is a good thing. But what you'd like to see is hospitals being able to fix the ventilators that they have um, and being able to keep them online. Um And I feel like I've been rambling a bit because there's just a lot of aspects to how we've gotten into a situation like this. But the broad strokes of it are companies have essentially installed digital rights management systems. So DRM, you may may have heard of them. It's the same type of software that prevents you from copying like a piece of software or video game. Um, And these are also called software locks or technical prevention measures, I believe. TPMs is another um, acronym for them. And they basically put a password on a piece of equipment. So you have a ventilator and you have a diagnostic mode for that ventilator. And in order to figure out what's wrong with it, you need a special, like a proprietary connector or proprietary software or a password in order to diagnose what is wrong with that ventilator. And even if you are able to diagnose what's wrong with that ventilator without that software, if you replace a part on that ventilator, like if you manage to take two broken ventilators and make one functioning ventilator, uh, the new functioning ventilator won't work unless you're able to input a password that's created by the manufacturer or flash new firmware to it that is proprietary and protected by copyright or what have you. So... It's interesting that you use the language of sickness to apply to these these ventilators that are so necessary in treating people who are desperately sick. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't even think of it that way, but essentially, yeah, you have, um, you know, you overuse these things, or in the case of ventilators, it's like I think it, I think it's best to talk in specifics. So there's a specific model of ventilator called the Puritan Bennett 840, which is a ventilator. Trust me, I'm not like a ventilator expert here, but in reporting this story, it's a it's a ventilator that came out about 20 years ago. And by all accounts, it's a good ventilator. It's something that has started to get phased out uh, because it's 20 years old and there's like newer and better ventilators. But for the most part, like this is a ventilator that works and is good. Um, it's trusted by a lot of doctors. They're in theory, easy to work on, but there is, uh, you know, an issue with them, which is they break after a long time and the software on the ventilator won't work unless you have the, unless you have, so there's two parts to a ventilator. There's like the monitor and then there's the breath delivery unit. So the monitor is like 
a, literally a screen that just tells you, you know, the patient's, the patient's vitals, how much, um, you know, the pressure that's being delivered, et cetera, et cetera. And that's connected to the breath uh, delivery unit, which is what's pumping air into the patient's lungs. So these two parts are connected. And if you have a broken monitor and you need to replace the monitor with a different one, uh, and you put a new monitor on a, you know, a new working monitor on a working breath delivery unit, the whole thing won't work unless you're able to sync the software between them. Um, and so you have this software is copyrighted by the company that owns it called Medtronic, and it can only be loaded onto these ventilators if you have a proprietary dongle that you use to connect the monitor and the breath delivery unit, and then you flash the software onto both parts of the machine using that dongle. And that dongle is only available to authorized repair people, and Medtronic only lets you become authorized if you pay them you know, thousands or tens of thousands of dollars every year or two. And so- not the most convenient system when you have a global plague, which requires the use of ventilators. Yeah. And not good. And, and so it's like, there are a limited number of people who are authorized to do these things because it's expensive to become authorized. And then you have a demand all over the country, all over the world to be fixing these things. And you have a limited number of people who can fix them because there's this artificial boundary put up. And so then you have really long wait times. Uh, You have artificially high costs for repairing because Medtronic has essentially a monopoly on what they're able to charge to fix a ventilator. And so... So enter hackers saving the day. Enter hackers saving the day. So... I spoke to a guy who has been buying uh, these PB840 ventilators off of eBay, broken ones, and has been fixing them. Um, And he is not authorized by the company to fix these things, but he has figured out a way to fix them nonetheless. And that's because like, at the end of the day, fixing these things is not that difficult. You're essentially, if you have this broken monitor problem, you're essentially connecting a new monitor to the you know, breath delivery unit, and then you're flashing the software to it. And there's no technical reason that anyone couldn't do that. You're basically plugging in a couple different wires and seeing if it works. And so you have this guy who's a technical guy, he's like a repair guy, but he's not, um, you know, authorized by the company to do so. Uh, And he was able to get a copy of this dongle, like a DIY copy of this dongle from a hacker in Poland who built it himself uh, and shipped it over to Hell yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah, Polish hackers. Hell yeah, Polish hackers. Hell yeah, Polish hackers. So you can see a picture of the dongle on Motherboard. Um, Have a picture in there. And it's like this little tiny thing. Um, It's basically a circuit board with a couple different inputs. And on that circuit board is some of the software needed, uh, or at least software needed to um, communicate with both parts of the ventilator. And then you connect a cord, a cable, like a, a coax cable to the dongle. And then you connect another cable to a laptop and you're able to flash software from the laptop through the dongle and onto the ventilator itself. And then it works. Thus, thus hacking the, the ventilator. Yeah, I mean, and it's a it's a it's a go around for the right to repair essentially. Yeah, I mean, 
so I, I talked about it. I talk about this all the time about whether to call this hacking. And in my opinion, it is hacking because we take a very broad view on what hacking is, I suppose. And so it's a DIY device, like a reverse engineered device that has been copied, uh, a copy of a proprietary device, and it's used to circumvent a software lock that was put on by the manufacturer. And exactly. So that's a hack. That's a hack in my opinion. And, and I haven't gotten shit for this. We, we published the article already, but I haven't gotten shit for calling it a hack. But people hear like, hey, you're hacking a ventilator. Like, isn't that unsafe? And I guess it would be unsafe to hack a ventilator to deliver like crazy amounts of air pressure to a sick person's lungs. But that's not what's happening here. What's being hacked is this this uh, proprietary lock that prevents a software update essentially. So, you know, these ventilators are being repaired by this guy who buys broken ones on eBay and then he sells them to states and hospitals and they're being tested and they work and they, they haven't been fucked with. Like they haven't been. No. And I think, you know, for me, why I find this story so fascinating is it's just, it's, it's sort of yet another example of how, this, and you know, this is in the tech space, but how this pandemic has sort of completely exploited the inadequacies and the stupidities in some of our culture and our systems, namely the right to repair. Like it's ridiculous that you can't own your phone and, and choose who you want to have it fixed by or how you're sort of at the mercy of Apple or, 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 or whatever your phone is. And in this case, you know, the pandemic has shown us in desperation, we need to get ventilators fixed quickly. And oh, there's also this kind of ridiculous stop that's being applied that's not allowing it to happen ha fast. And I think that that's, that's I mean, that's, it's, it's as if this couldn't be more, we couldn't have more examples of how this whole thing is just changing our world. Right, right. And yeah, I mean, I want to talk like this guy who, um, you know, our source who's doing this, um, he doesn't work in a hospital, but he's selling these things to hospitals. But hospitals are facing the exact same problem. And I didn't speak to any repair people in hospitals who have resorted to using, you know, DIY dongles um, from Poland in a hospital setting. <laughs> but they're facing the exact same problem. So there was a report released um, by the USPIRG Education Fund, which is this right to repair advocacy group. Um, well, they're a consumer rights advocacy group that cares about right to repair. And they surveyed 222 biomedical professionals and found that 92% of them had been denied access to repair information by manufacturers. And of those, I think it was like 35% of them said that they have broken ventilators in their hospital that are just sitting in a closet somewhere because they, quote, lack access to parts and service information. So the way that this has worked is like a hospital will hire biomedical technicians, which is repair people, and they do maintenance on different devices. And these people are trained. They're vetted by the hospital. They are liable if they fix something and it goes wrong. And what's happening is they're being asked to take these these like classes with various, um, you know, device manufacturers for tens of thousands of dollars a year. And that's okay if you're fixing 
one type of machine. But if you are a repair person for a hospital and you need to get certified by 15 different manufacturers to work on a hundred different types of medical equipment, like that's millions of dollars a year. And so a lot of these, you know, these, these costs are definitely passed on to consumers and passed on to insurance companies. And it's yet another thing that America gets wrong about health insurance. Like there's definitely a bottom line uh, effect here, but then there's also the fact that, you know, you have biomedical technicians who work in hospitals who are unable to fix these things that they could very easily fix because they're not, I mean, they're complex machines, but what we've learned time and time again is like, they're complex machines, but they're largely like Legos, um, for lack of a better term, where it's like, you take they are yeah you take out one part and you put in another part and it's like you click the cord in and it either works or it doesn't you know that that's what came out when this whole defense production act conversation came in it really is just sort of like this this multi 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 piece device that requires you know it may not may not be actually the most uh, efficient piece of medical hardware well, yeah. And it's like, I mean, even something complex, like, a, I mean, I actually don't know the level of complexity of different pieces of, of medical equipment, but you can imagine something like an MRI machine, like if something goes wrong on that, uh, I mean, I don't know how they work, but it's like a car where, you know, something breaks and you just replace the part that breaks and you mm-hmm. reset the whole thing and it either works or it doesn't. And when you're, when you're replacing a part, the biomedical technician or the repair person is not making that part from scratch. They're not welding together or soldering together no. microchips, you know, like that, that part, if it is a good part that works, then it, then it can be fixed without, you know, I, I don't know, without like an electrical engineering degree. It's, it's like, it's, yeah. it's just, well, the other thing with ventilators the as well, and it works. The other thing with ventilators as well, it's cleaning them. And that's been another thing that's been, you know, take, you have to take them apart to clean them. Right. Right. And, you know, this is the sort of thing that allows. It also has a lot more moving parts than, than a, mm-hmm. a lot of other things. And so anything with moving parts is going to need preventative maintenance. And it's going to also need to be repaired at some point, regardless of how good it is uh, when it's designed. I mean, that that's like these PB840 things. Like a lot of them are 20 years old and they broke not because they're shit, but because they've been used for 20 years and like there's a bunch of moving parts here. So you have to replace the parts that wear out. So, I mean, I I know I've been rambling and there's a lot of different parts to this, but there's also the fact that these are very artificial boundaries. Um, And so there is a movement to make this sort of thing illegal, to make it illegal to prevent the owner of a device from fixing things. So this is, uh, it's called right to repair legislation and it's something that's been proposed in more than 20 states. And the legislation that I've seen largely requires manufacturers to sell replacement parts to the public. Uh, It requires them to release uh, diagnostic tools and to sell tools to the public as well and to also release uh, repair guides so the same guides that these authorized people use would have to be made available to the public as well. And so there's been like a huge backlash to this among big companies. Uh, it's something that Apple has lobbied against. It's something that John Deere has lobbied against. And it's something that the medical industry has also lobbied against. So you have 
you know, millions of dollars being spent to kill legislation at a state level, um, which is pretty easy to do. It's pretty easy to kill a bill rather than pass a bill because you just like scream cybersecurity and, you know, hackers and people are people are going to hurt themselves or die or we're going to get sued. And you're able to convince a bunch of like state level lawmakers that, you know, the lobbyists for these big companies knows more about the tech technological aspects than you, a, a lawmaker does. And so they've been very like these manufacturers have been very good at killing this sort of legislation uh, before it's passed, but one place it, that it, I mean, it represents it represents a huge influx of cash. Yeah, it's I mean, like these not com- even and it's, it's a not business even that required. model for these companies. Like they make a ton right. of money through this authorized uh, you know process, and so you have um, one place where it has worked out is in cars, which are very complex machines. But there was a right to repair legislation uh, passed in Massachusetts, in, I believe like twenty. 14, something like that. You know, the recent bankruptcies of uh, U.S. automakers, General Motors and Chrysler, leaving one very important detail in question, you the consumer. Well, there's a bill that's making its way through Congress right now that would give car owners greater choice in maintenance and repairs. They wouldn't necessarily have to go to the dealer or dealer-approved repair shops. It's called the Right to Repair Act. Um, And that requires car manufacturers to sell, you know, transmissions and blah, blah, blah to the general public, like diagnostic dongles and things like this. And that's why you can go to like Pep Boys and get an oil change or Pep Boys or, you know, your local auto repair place that's not owned by Mazda or Honda or Ford or whatever and and get (laughs) things fixed. And it's like, we don't have cars that are just like exploding because a random, like your neighbor fixed uh, an alternator in your car or whatever. And and so it's the same (laughs) argument for, uh, for iPhones and it's the same argument for medical devices and tractors and what have you. So there is a lot of political, uh, you know, will for this because I think people do want to be able to fix their things. I think people are realizing that this is very artificial and that there are highly negative, uh, impact on the consumer as well as small businesses because a lot of um, repair people are small small businesses, um, and so I mean we hope that we'll see some sort of movement here over the next couple months, years, what have you. But it is there is a fix for this, and it's a regulatory fix, and I think it's something that we probably will see because every time we write about this, people get very mad because and rightly so like i get mad when i read about hospitals not being able to use ventilators even though they have the people who are certainly able to fix them but they can't get the parts or they can't get the manuals or the diagnostic tools that they need in order to get them back out there and treating patients i i certainly feel especially as people become more and more literate with hacking and code and things like that that this right to repair is is going to become more and more important to enact but i also feel like it's sort of this you know it's it's probably one of the last stands that these companies are having where they have their final stranglehold on this kind of legislation on this kind of action so they can now kind of get squeeze as much out of the tube of money as they can until this completely changes yeah i mean it it depends on the industry but i feel like it is it's kind of now or never in a lot of ways because the uh, technological measures that companies have put in are getting harder and harder to circumvent. 
So like this PB840 device is 20 years old. So hacking it and getting past the, the software there, the software locks there is not that hard. But if you look at a newer uh, ventilator released in the last couple of years, it's like you don't need a proprietary dongle. You need a login to a server that is owned by the manufacturer that then verifies that the person who's fixing it has paid the company money to become authorized. And so that's like a lot harder because then you're talking about spoofing servers. You're talking about, you know, things that are much closer to fraud where it's like, <laughs> you know, you're creating either like a fake server to get past a, a proprietary lock uh, and in the meantime, all these businesses are dying because they're unable, like the small businesses are dying because they're unable to fix newer devices. And so you have people who are hanging on by fixing these older devices. But as those become obsolete, like there's going to be nothing for them to work on unless they're able to to work on newer devices. And so you kind of need this legislation to be passed like soon before the... Mm-hmm. Um, technological measures that are taken to prevent repair become so sophisticated that getting past them is like more trouble than it's worth. And it will be something we'll see in the next year or two. Well, maybe not the next year, but certainly the next little while this will, I think this will completely come to a, to a head. Yeah. Cool. Uh, cool. Thank you. Thank you. Polish hacker. Yeah. He's, he's a good guy. I talked to him too which is cool. Chill dude. Yeah. All right. Farewell. Farewell. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Lorenzo, this is your first time in the Cypher. It's a little less stressful. I love it. Uh, I forgot to bring my long hair, so I don't know if I can do my best Jason impression, but <laughs> luckily it's uh, radio and not TV, right? boom Thanks, Dad, for that joke. <laughs> That's uh, what they pay me for, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just a reminder of our editors, This is we're being paid for this right now. <laughs> um... Okay, well, let's uh, let's get let's just get right into it. Uh, as we were just discussing, there's no fun to be had in a uh, vacationing kind of way in today's today's state of plague. But what you can do, what some guy has done, is cross the country on Google Street View one click at a time. Yeah, I, I love this story. This is so great. It's like this is the pandemic story. You know, it's like the perfect. Uh, motherboard story for these times. Uh, this is a story of a 19-year-old uh, called Uday Scholz. 
he's a sophomore at Harvard and he was basically like, look, I cannot go anywhere. No one can go anywhere. I'm just going to cross the country, which was one of his dreams, has long been one of his dreams. I'm going to cross the country on Google Street View. And you know, why not? Sounds like a great idea. Um, he says that he's been doing it like 30 minutes to 60 minutes every day. So he's busy. Where's he at now again? Right now is in Minnesota. Yeah, he's 60 miles northwest of Minnesota. And so he's been doing it since June 19. So I guess it's been like a month almost. And he, yeah. Wow. That's a shit ton of clicking, I gotta say. Yeah, it's a lot of clicking. And um, yeah, it's like he's it's, it's crossing the country one click at a time, literally. Um, <laughs> I like this line. He finished telling me about some of the places. You see this, by the way, this is Aaron Gordon, the great Aaron Gordon of motherboard reporting fame. And he's saying, after Schultz finished telling me about some of the places he'd seen from the Missouri River, river I, I always say Missouri wrong, but whatever, dams to the Milwaukee Road abandoned rail lines. <laughs> it is interesting that the concept of seeing something digitally and like whether it qualifies. And I think like, fuck it, man. I think it does qualify, you know? Yeah, I think they, they talk about it in the story. Aaron asked uh, Schultz about it and... Uh, they both eventually agreed that it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of like traveling, but not really. And I love this line from Aaron at the end. He said, we live street view lives now where everything is real, but nothing is there. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Wow. That was like that. Oof, that just stared and bared into my soul. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I love this story because Aaron is so good at finding this, first of all, these like really <laughs> strange stories uh, about about infrastructure because this is like and transportation yeah, exactly he's just like a king of yeah, this like this kid is not doing it just to have a fun um you know online road trip but also because he's like uh, obsessed with like uh, infrastructure dams and stuff like that and so he wanted to see it and right now this is the only way to do it I, you know what i feel like aaron's stories always have this grain of i mean it's always about infrastructure transportation but it's how we're we're so confined by the horror of modern transportation and the hollowness of our own minds. <laughs> yeah, I guess the the upside to this to you know doing a road trip this way is that you don't have, you actually don't have to drive on the shitty roads that are in the U.S. You know, you can just do yeah, it. Yeah, that's on your true. We're both we're, we are both also not U.S. nationals and know that roads are better in other countries. That they seem to be. It's very strange because you know you would think that they would be better yeah. here. But yeah, great story. You'd think. Great story. Uh, this next one's from you. Also a character who I've reported on. I call her, I, I got my French coming out here, but I call him Gilene, but like, I think it's called Giz, Gislaine Maxwell, uh, who is of Jeffrey Epstein fame, a pedophile, convicted pedophile, Jeffrey Epstein. She was alleged to be his fixer extraordinaire trying to get traffic young women it's some really obviously disgusting stuff that she's alleged to be a part of she was free since since he went through all of his legal troubles and even at, well until after he had killed himself or Epstein didn't kill himself uh but now she was you know she's recently arrested and you've you, you reported on a very interesting little little uh opsec that she opsec Upset that she took she took on upon herself that I gotta go with you. I don't think it works. Well, <laughs> that's the interesting thing here. So, 
So yeah, she was arrested recently and charged, as you said. Um, and you know, when the FBI went to get her, they found initially she resisted. You know, she tried to get away on something like that. And uh, what caught our eye? Did she run? Like, what did she do? Like, like they knocked on her door and she pretended not to hear it. Something like that. Something uh, not as dramatic as you would. Yeah, think. That's not how that. That's not how that works. Um, <laughs> and uh, when the FBI came in, eventually they they found her. One of her phones was wrapped in tinfoil, and the agents uh, said that this was in a. They they called it a failed attempt to evade surveillance. Uh, but the funny thing is that Jason uh, um, yesterday decided to test this and uh, he wrapped his own iPhone in tinfoil, asked Emmanuel, our other editor, to call him. And yeah, the call did not go through. So it seems like if you wrap your phone in tinfoil, the phone will not work. Uh, now, whether this is going to stop the FBI, I think uh, if, uh, you know, if Miss Maxwell's story is any indication that it does not work, but yeah, if you want to stop your parents from calling you to check in on you and what you know to check in whether you got coronavirus or not, then that works. Uh, put it in tinfoil, but you know you could also just turn it off, I guess. But I guess also she might not have been caught by the FBI using the phone, but they did mention that the tinfoil didn't work. So, I mean, who knows, but yeah. it's... Yeah, I guess, you know, jokes apart, like it does seem to stop signals. Like it does seem like tinfoil turns your... Like you can use tinfoil as sort of a do-it-yourself Faraday cage. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Like I think it would... Whether it would stop any kind of actual real surveillance, you know, government surveillance, that's a whole another issue. Like you can't stop government surveillance <laughs> just with tinfoil or a Faraday cage. No, but I... But I guess you got a one thing worth mentioning about Maxwell is that she there's always been tons of allegations surrounding her family and her her father in particular hmm. and their connections to intelligence. So you'd think there'd be some sort of better opsec than just the tinfoil, you know? Yeah, maybe she heard this. Maybe there was a joke at some family meeting. I don't know. Like, I, I honestly, I like just get that get that burner, girl. Like, get that burner. What's up? What? Like, what? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, what was funny about this, and it's that, like, you know, as someone who reports on cybersecurity and surveillance, uh, and you know, part of a newsroom that's full of paranoid people uh, for good reasons, we had never heard of mm -hmm. this little trick. Um, you know, we we had heard about Snowden. No, no, exactly. We've all yeah, like we've all, gone through yeah, this yeah, stuff. Yeah, we've all heard of Snowden putting phones in fridges or microwaves. Uh, you know, we we've all seen the Mr. Robot and stuff like that. But no one had ever told me that. Actually, but the microwave work, one. So that's pretty cool. But the the microwave the microwave thing's a real thing though. Yeah, yeah, that seems to work too. But I guess you know the the, the thing because it destroys it destroys your. Uh, but it also like when you want to get rid of some uh, like a a, mm -hmm. a motherboard. Yeah, I think it, it, it burns. Yeah, it. if you want to destroy data, it seems like if you microwave it, that that's that's gonna work. But if you're trying to like avoid you know getting geolocated with your phone, like tinfoil is not gonna do the trick. Um, no. Also, like maybe just don't use a phone. I got to be honest with you. If I'm at that level of like secrecy, I'm just, I'm not using a phone. Yeah. It's really hard not to use a phone these days though. How do you help uh, your friend Jeffrey Epstein without a phone? It's hard. I mean, even Bin Laden knew it, man. That's why Bin Laden was, was stayed away so long that he screwed up. 
It did, yeah, it, it did evade the, the U.S. authorities for a long time, though. Well, there was no internet connection. He had no phone, and it was all couriers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he famously had, like, CDs of porn and video games, you know, everything offline. He did. He did love... He did love some pornography. Yeah, he, he could. But I'm not going to shame. I'm not going to kink shame. I'm not going to kink shame. No, no, no. That's. I'm just saying that, like, not even Bin Laden. No, no. I'm just saying that poor, you know, poor Bin Laden could not use Pornhub or any other website like that. He, he had to rely on good old, you he know, magazines not, no. and CDs. No, but it, I mean, it also just speaks to the fact that, like, if you truly are under, if you're truly wanted by authorities, or you're you're trying to even like just a regular opsec, if you're trying to avoid being hacked, etc., the only way to do it is to completely go offline. Yeah, 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 yeah. Team Foil could be part of a larger plan, but it's not going to save you on its mm, own. Just get that landline. Get that landline. Landline. What is that? <laughs> I, I want to know if there's people that still have them. Um, okay, so this is a again. This is practically this this third story and final story. We're gonna look, we're gonna look over. I swear to God, NSO is practically like they're a common fixture on this this program because they can't they can't stay out of can't stay out of the news constantly. Yeah, th- and we got some uh, we got some news on them. Yeah, so we so the Israeli court. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this take it away. Yes, you're the NSO guy. You're the NSO reporter. Yeah, yeah, we love NSO. Joseph and I love NSO. We report them all the time, and you know, we 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 love. We just love it. Um, so this is a story where, so this is a case that Amnesty International brought in a in Israel. They sued NSO, um, and their goal was essentially to try to stop. NSO from uh, exporting their technology to to the rest of the world, and they their argument was Amnesty's argument was that NSO is not respecting human rights and uh, Israel should revoke um, the company's export license. Uh, and the bad news for Amnesty is that the court, the Israeli court, uh, rejected and you know denied the 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 case and NSO will will continue to be able to export the the license. Um, the court argued that there's not enough evidence that NSO technology has been um, abused and uh, has been used against uh, human rights activists and you know against human rights. And so yeah, Amnesty lost the case, which is uh, yeah, which is interesting because it's one of a long series of attempts uh, from NGOs and civil rights uh, organizations to stop this kind of companies in court and it's never never worked um in the in the past EFF had sued the uh, hacking team and tried to stop hacking team from doing the same it didn't work um so yeah i think what's interesting here is that we don't really know who is responsible for checking this kind of things because the way it works right now is that every government gives uh, their companies meaning the companies in their territory uh, permission to act to export this kind of technology. And you would think that they would, you know, in theory, they do some sort of human rights um, check, uh, but there's never been a case of companies, uh, at least that we know of, that have been, uh, that have had their, actually, let me rephrase that. Hacking team eventually got their license revoked, but they it also, then they got renewed again. So so it just seems like governments can't really, don't can't really do this kind of work. 
And NSO, you also just published another story on them. You want to talk quickly about that? Yeah, I guess this is NSO's week. Uh, Joseph and I published published. It's been a, there's been a lot of weeks. They've had a lot of weeks. Yeah, yeah, it's themselves. been uh, they've had a lot of weeks on this show. Yeah, they've been busy. So, so yeah, we just reported today that um, the Spanish government uh, is a customer of NSO Group, um, according to a, a former NSO employee. And this is timely because The Guardian and El País, the Spanish newspaper, reported yesterday that uh, a few Catalan uh, separatists and politicians had been targeted with NSO spyware. Um, so it, it would appear that the Spanish government used you know, NSO spyware to target politicians within their own uh, country, which would be the first time that a, a European government uses a technology like NSO's technology to target um, citizen in the, citizens in their own country. Wow. That is a big one. Yeah, it's it's huge. Uh, the Catalan, Catalan politicians obviously are pissed. Uh, European Parliament um, members are concerned. You know, they're asking questions and asking for an investigation. The Spanish government had a very interesting non-denial denial. The response to The Guardian was, we have no evidence that these guys were targeted uh, by they didn't really deny it. Um, so, uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. I think uh, this will be a case that that will really tell us, uh, that will really test the limits of this kind of technology and what governments can do with this kind of technology. Um, you know, this is such a unique case also because, um, you, the, you know, C Catalonia was trying to, uh, try to declare independence a couple of years ago. That whole process became a political scandal. The Spanish government went after the politicians in many ways. Uh, some of them ended up being convicted for sedition and had to go to jail. So, so yeah, it was just a, a very big escalation and a huge conflict within Europe, pretty much unprecedented since Europe became uh, uh, what it is right now. Yep. Well... I'm sure that won't be the last we hear of NSO Group, I gotta say. <laughs> I'm pretty sure too, yeah. All right, well, that was a good debut on Cypher, Lorenzo. You did well. Thanks, Ben. Always, uh, always happy to be uh, on the internet with you. Perfect. <laughs> Maybe I'll see you someday in person. On, or a street view, perhaps. <laughs> Fuck that. <laughs> Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money.